Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Crazy Money. This is your host, Paul Ollinger. Today is a great day to be alive, and I am happy that you are here with me. My guest this week is Ben Carlson. He's the Director of Institutional Asset Management at Ritholtz Wealth Management. He's the author of several books about investing and a founder of the blog, A Wealth of Common Sense. He's not a founder of that blog. He's the founder of that blog. In fact, he is a co-founder, however, of the podcast Animal Spirits with Michael and Ben, which is informative and funny and uh, a little bit geeky at the same time. It's worth your time. On this week's episode, Ben and I talk about inflation and how it relates to the stock market, this bear market that we find ourselves in in the summer of 2022. Why everything is so confusing, what with interest rates up and unemployment down. We talk about 90s hip-hop. We talk about the three books he would assign to a 25-year-old who wants to learn about money, what you should and shouldn't do when the stock market is bloody and battered, and why and where there is hope for the future of, of our economy. The net of it, folks, is that we shouldn't be panicking. I'm not panicking. You're panicking. Don't panic. That's what we're going to talk about today on Crazy Money with Ben Carlson. Ben Carlson, welcome to Crazy Money. Great to be here. Hey, let's start. Let's uh, start out by getting to know you a little bit, uh, and we'll jump into your career credentials and what's going on in the market in a minute. But first, let's start with what is your favorite movie about business? I'm a '90s guy when it comes to pop culture, so I was always a big fan of Boiler Room. Yeah, really, and uh, I, 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 lo- I think that movie ages well. I've always thought my secret movie opinion is that I think Boulder was better than Wolf of Wall Street because that was the original one. Plus the Ben Affleck speech is uh, is kind of hard to beat. So I, I is, really but, like that one. But it's a total ripoff of, uh, you know, Coffee is for Closers. Alec Baldwin. Yeah, a little a little bit. But uh, but in in Affleck's defense, I always thought that movie was kind of boring, even though it was uh, pe- more people liked it. But uh, yeah, anyway, it was. Yeah, they ripped off Alec Baldwin for the 90s, I guess. Yeah, I've heard you make Blink-182 references on your podcast. So that next question is, what's your what's what's your favorite song from the 90s? Oh, geez, that's like asking me my favorite child. Uh, you know, I have to, <laughs> this would take me hours of flow charts and uh, different what kind of music. And uh, but no, I still do like I was always a pretty big fan of like the alternative stuff be- between the alternative stuff and the I, I think. Rap in the 90s is to my generation what, uh, you know, rock and roll was to my parents' generation in the 60s. So what was the first rap song that 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 lit you up? Oh, so I mean, the chronic one from Dr. Dre was that that album probably got me like many white suburban kids that uh, immediately hooked me. Like in, the, so. the hip hop scene in Grand Rapids is pretty strong. Yeah, not quite. But uh, we tried. All right. Lastly, what are you binge watching these days? What did we just oh the the bear on Hulu and F- FX. Uh, I'm a Midwestern guy. It takes place in Chicago. I've had a lot of friends in Chicago, family in Chicago. I have a big affinity for Italian beef. It's about a, a family that runs a restaurant that creates Italian beef and they're kind of dysfunctional. And I, my first job actually was as a busboy in a restaurant. So I kind of remember that how chaotic that that world is working in the restaurant business. And uh my wife and I loved it, and we binged it very quickly. Yeah, I did too. Days, I, I watched it last week. I watched it in like two nights. I was uh, hanging out at my buddy Rob Goldberg's house in LA. He's like, this is a show you should check out, and I watched it all in a couple. Pretty great, right? Yeah, it's, it's fantastic. Great music too. And like you, I worked in restaurants, and uh, it, it reminds you of how hectic it is and how you don't see how you're going to get through a couple of hours of work, and then all of a sudden the evening winds down. It's kind of crazy. Yes. As someone who sits at a desk every day, yeah, I, I don't know that my personality could handle all that. 
going around, but uh, it's interesting to get a look into that kind of world. Yeah, for sure. All right, I want to clarify going forward that we are not offering investment advice today. We are just talking about the world, and I don't want to put you on the hook to offering advice, though I will be asking you pointed questions. That's fine. My, my, whole, my whole ethos is providing context as, a, as opposed to uh, providing advice when I'm putting out anything in the world. So Yeah. All right. So on the Ritz-Holtz Wealth Management site, there's something written I found interesting. It says, we believe you must invest in the markets as they are, not as you wish them to be. How would you describe the markets as they are today, July 19th, 2022? Not specifically this morning's trading activity, but in general. The markets today are confusing. I think to a lot of people. I think if if you're not a little confused, you're not really paying attention to what's going on. There's stuff that on the macroeconomic environment you have to pay attention to, inflation, and then you have monetary policy where the Fed is raising rates. I think that the pandemic and everything that happened to it pretty much altered the history of the economy in ways that we can't even fathom right now. I think people are going to look back. How so? Like like what happened? Well, people are going to look back at this period because for years and years inflation was low. And that was the biggest problem people were worried about, right? The, the Fed is keeping interest rates at zero and they're printing all this money and they're pushing on a string and inflation just isn't happening. A lot of people are just beating their heads against their desks saying, why shouldn't everyone own gold right now? And why isn't the Fed crashing the system? And why are stocks still doing good? And then the pandemic came along and the government spent all this money to keep the economy afloat. And as we sort of put it on ice. And I think then people realize like, oh, right, the, the Fed itself is not really the, the main, you know, Wizard of Oz here. It's the government spending that matters because that's money going into people's pockets. People are spending that money. That's really what did it with inflation. But I mean, if you look at any economic chart over the past three years, unemployment, uh, retail spending, any of this stuff, you see this stuff fall off a cliff and then spike back up. And now we're, tr- we're in that kind of phase where things are trying to sort of level out and people are trying to figure out what's going on. and I think that there's just so much stuff that's going on that's confusing because we have inflation that's the highest it's been in 40 plus years. Uh, you have people who think we're in a recession right now. You have people who think we're going to be in a recession soon or the Fed's going to push us there. You have people who think, no, actually things are actually okay right now. And you have the housing market that just went bananas for 24 months. All this stuff that's going on. And I think the problem for our sort of primitive brains is that when stuff happens this fast, I think it's hard for people to really understand what is going on. And markets now more than ever are just speeding up. The cycles are faster and faster. And you're seeing moves that you've never, you know, it seems like once a week you see a headline that says, thing that has never happened before is happening now. Right. And so, uh, yeah, I, I would color myself in that camp too, that it's, it's a very confusing time. So you would expect that unemployment and a crashing stock market and recession would all be correlated, but in, in fact, they're not here. I mean, it, it's hard to get your head around what's really going on. That's the, that's the other bizarre thing that it, it's hard to, there's a lot of people who just are cynical these days and pessimistic and only want to look at the downside. So obviously inflation is not good. I'm not going to be one of the people who say hey, inflation is good, but <laughs> you have people, people in the labor market who people were, were shouting for years, you know, why is minimum wage still 725 an hour or whatever it is? And now effectively the pandemic for all intents and purposes lifted minimum wage. And the people on the low end of the income scale have gotten wage increases that they've never seen in their entire lives. And I, I think that wouldn't have happened had the pandemic not happened. And, and obviously, inflation hurts those households a lot because they're the ones that see right to their budget, right? Yep. The things like gas prices, and they make up a higher percentage of that. But these people have also seen the biggest wage spikes of anyone. So when the pandemic first started, my whole thinking was, this is going to make inequality worse because rich people are going to be fine. 
they don't have to go into a, a job they don't want to have to go to. They can buy stocks on the cheap when they're down 30%, and they're going to come out better than ever. And surprisingly, the, the group that has done the best is like the lowest income quartile. Their wages have risen the most. They've seen their the bottom 50% has seen on a relative basis their wealth increase the most on a percentage terms since the start of the pandemic. It's it's very surprising. I think a lot of the stuff that happened in the past few years would be shocking to people if they really dug into the numbers. So I posted this this snarky image on my Instagram the other day. It was a Fourth of July themed uh, image with like an, a party invitation, and I said, "Welcome to nine point one percent inflation, everybody." And I said, "You know, trillions in government handouts leads us to this. You know, pr- presents this thing." And somebody posted, Brad Shelton, you know who you are, posted on there. He said, "If inflation, if this is the cause of inflation, why is inflation happening in other countries as well?" And I didn't. Have have a strong answer for him. Were, were there government handouts in other countries or is, can inflation not be contained in, in one geographic area? I, I do think it's it's a more globalized world. There, there's different kinds of inflation. Here, I really think people underestimate how much we just love to consume. We love spending money in this country. And when we <laughs> got that we? money, that's what we, <laughs> we, we just bought stuff. So like even adjusted for inflation, retail sales are way higher than they were if you would have just followed the, the pre-pandemic trend, right? And now people decided like, well, I don't want to buy much stuff anymore. I want to go out and experience stuff. So that's why we're seeing there's a bunch of other reasons for it, but all the travel problems, right? Because people decided, all right, I'm, I've been putting off trips for two or three years. I'm taking all these trips I can. In other countries, a lot of it is energy, but you're right that you're, what'd you say his name was, Brad? Brad Shelton. It's, it's a good comeback to say, you know, because inflation is as high as it's been in the UK for 40 years too. A, a lot of those other countries did perform some stimulus programs, not nearly as large as us and in most of them. But I I do think, again, the pandemic screwed a lot of things up. And I think the supply chain problems that it caused, I think that's a big part of this. The labor market stuff that caused, you know, people who had to drop out of the labor force to take care of their kids or people who dropped out of the labor force for health reasons. I think just it was a giant monkey wrench that got thrown into the system. And if, if you went back and told us in, and I said this on my podcast at the time, it, with all this spending, because you could see it, we're, we're spending more than we have since World War II, right? And I said, you know, because we went immediately into deflation then, right? You had the biggest quarterly drop in GDP ever on an annualized basis, even bigger than the Great Depression. And I think I said at the time, if if our biggest problem is inflation in a few years, you know, I think that means we actually won and we beat this thing. Now, I didn't expect to see 9% inflation, and I think this stuff is, especially the supply chain stuff has lasted a lot longer than I would ever anticipate But I think it probably does show just how globalized the economy is these days, that that it's all sort of interwoven and all these countries are aligning each other in terms of uh, supplies and commodities and, and all this other stuff. But you're right. It, just be, it wasn't just the U.S. that, that caused this or the Fed printing money. This happened on a global basis. And inflation is high pretty much everywhere. You mentioned earlier or, or made reference to the fact that inflation is a regressive problem, meaning $7 gas really hurts poor people a lot more than it hurts rich people. What rich people are looking at is the stock market and the value of their homes. How are inflation and the stock market correlated? Over the long term, the stock market remains your best hedge against inflation. Dividends over time tend to grow above the rate of inflation. Earnings grow above the rate of inflation. The stock market over the last 100 years has grown 6 or 7% above the rate of inflation. It remains probably your best option at improving your standard of living over the long term. Unfortunately, over the short term, if inflation is rising, returns tend to be far below average. So average returns have, over the last 100 years have been 9 or 10%. When inflation is higher one year to the next, average returns go down about 5 or 6%. And if inflation is above 3%, it's, it's about the same. And if it's below 3%, it's, it's much higher because 3% is about the average inflation rate, right? So 
What, what it also means is that valuations, what investors are willing to pay for stocks, those valuations tend to be much lower in inflationary periods. Because earnings go down or, or why? Not necessarily. See, that's the, on a real basis, they, they go down. But actually, one of the highest nominal increases in, in earnings ever, is if you break them up by decades, is the 1970s. Earnings still grew, but it's just because inflation is sort of eating into them. Investors aren't willing to pay up as much. So the, the last 10 years before the last you know 18 months, we had 0% interest rates and people were willing to pay up for growth, right? I want a company like that's Shopify or PayPal, or whatever, that's growing 25% per year. I don't care if they earn any profits. I don't care if they're paying any dividends. There's 0% interest rates. And so I want some sort of growth. But now that inflation is higher, interest rates are higher, people say, wait a minute, I prefer cash flows now as opposed to cash flows in the future. Right, so I want companies that are paying dividends and companies that are earning something, and I don't care if you can grow your earnings a lot and ten years into the future you can potentially make a profit. I want profit now, and that's kind of the way that people think about these these things. But yeah, it, it's more that in yeah, in inflation eats into your return on equity, like because your cash flows are worth a little less every year. Right. How much do you think that psychological momentum or lack thereof is playing into the direction of the market these days? I think that's any time in the short term. I think the psychology and emotions dictates the majority of the market moves. Over the long term, the very long term, we're talking decades here. You can say it's fundamentals that that really rule the day. Again, it's earnings and dividends and cash flow and innovation and these companies getting bigger and better. But over the short term, even the intermediate term, it's so much more based on momentum and trend and headlines and how people are positioned and where money is flowing to. And unfortunately, understanding that psychology is very difficult. Like human nature is the one constant in the market, but humans are also very surprising in their actions at times, especially when you think about we have millions and millions of people investing in the markets, all with different time horizons, different opinions, uh, different investment strategies. And it's hard to get everyone rowing in the same direction. You know, Gordon Gecko told Bud Fox in my favorite movie about business, Wall Street, never get emotional about a stock. And I, I, I consider myself to be a pretty rational person until the market takes a 30% dive in about six months. So what counsel would you give me as I'm starting to think more emotionally uh, or act more emotionally than, than my rational brain uh, should be allowing? I am a huge proponent of making good decisions ahead of time. And I think that means automating a lot of your investing. So you're not having to use that emotional part of your brain now. I think for a lot of it, it's hard to do when you're in the moment, right? Because I think for a lot of people, you have to build in the stock market could crash over any 6, 12, 18, 24 month period. And unfortunately, there's not a lot you can do about it. You could say <laughs> I, could, I could hedge, I could be in more defensive names. But right. for a lot of people, sometimes you just have to literally eat your losses and sort of take it, especially if it's with you know retirement money, anything that's five to seven years in the future, sometimes you just have to sort of eat your losses. And for some people, that's very hard to do because especially during a bear market, we want to have our hands on the steering wheel, right? We want to put it on there. We want to do something because it feels good. We need like this emotional release valve. So I think for some people, what you could do, because I know a lot of people want to just completely get out. I, I'm throwing my hands up. I'm going to get back in when the dust settles. I'm going to go to cash now. And then when things get better and the headlines are better, I'm going to get back in. And unfortunately, you know, most of the time that you know, by the, by the time we had the vaccine, the first rollout of the vaccines, the stock market was already back to all time highs. Right. So like the, the time those the head, the good headlines finally hit from the pandemic, it was too late. So I think that's going to probably be I, I don't know exactly how things are going to work out, but 
we could be going into a recession. The stock market has already bottomed, you know? And, and so I, I think one thing you can do as like an emotional release valve is just cut out a certain portion of your portfolio, 5, 10, 15%, whatever it is, and just say, this is my scratch that itch side of my portfolio or my, or my fund portfolio or my release valve where I'm going to time the market. I'm going to take flyers on individual stocks. I'm going to try to hedge. I'm going to buy puts, whatever it is. It's your gambling you money. Figure out, yeah, you, you figure out an amount that can kind of help scratch that itch enough so that you can leave the rest of it alone kind of on autopilot and don't touch it and just don't mess it up unless something changes in your circumstances. Because yeah, the, the worst time to, to make a move is typically during a bear market because that's not when you're thinking straight. Yeah, I've been trying to practice that stoic neg negative visualization practice where you think, okay, these I could lose these things and I have a number in mind. I know what my overall portfolio where 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 it hit its high and and I'm trying to think about, hey, if if it goes back to number X where it was, I don't know, four years ago. I'm going to be okay. I was okay then. I'm going to be okay now. And so I'm just trying to say, okay, be okay until it hits that number. I don't know what, and it hasn't hit that number yet. I don't know what I'm going to do if it gets there. I'll probably just lower that number again. Well, my, my, one of my favorite investment authors of all time is William Bernstein. And he has this book called Deep Risk. And he breaks down risk into two components in the market, right? One is, is deep risk, which is you, you, you lock in losses. And that could be like government confiscates your assets or hyperinflation <laughs> or something, something really crazy. I don't think we really have to worry about that. But the other thing is making a bad decision at a bad time. And so that would be selling your stocks after they're down 30 or 40%, right? Because you, you lock in those losses. And if you don't reinvest them and the stock market comes back, his other, his other type of risk is shallow risk. And shallow risk is just volatility, and that's the natural flow of the markets that eventually comes back. And you don't know when it's going to come back or how, but shallow risk is the risk that is temporary in nature. And I think if, if you own a broad, diversified set of global stocks, you know, you never say never, but I'm, I'm pretty comfortable in thinking that over the long term, people are going to still continue to want to get up and better themselves and have some progress and, and companies are going to continue to innovate and produce profits that eventually they they will come back. And so I think that's why this is one of those shallow risk scenarios that doesn't feel great, but it's kind of one of those this too shall pass kind of moments. Speaking of institutionals, you you are an institutional investor. How does the way a college or a nonprofit manages its money different than than how individuals do? And and how does that how does that manifest in the way that you relate to your clients? One of the things that I've always said is for a lot of these institutions, it's just a couple more zeros. So they could be managing, you know, tens of millions of dollars, some of them hundreds of millions of dollars. I worked with endowments that manage billions of dollars, right? And I don't think because you have that much more money that you should automatically just throw out all the, you know, philosophical reasons that you invest and the, the values that you invest and that asset allocation is still really important and matching your time horizon with your risk profile is still very important, you know, and having your portfolio match your goals. Like, what are you, what are you investing for in the first place? I think those things all still matter. Now, where it does get different is when you're dealing with the institutional pool of capital, you're dealing with groups of people. So they could have a board or an investment committee. And there's a lot of politics involved in that. And a lot, sometimes a lot with nonprofits, you have people who are volunteering. Right. And <laughs> God bless them for wanting to volunteer. But a lot of times they want to come in and say, all right, I'm volunteering. You Dogecoin. You should be in Dogecoin. Yeah. So, yeah. So, hey, I know this private equity manager. I can get you in. And I think right. we should come in and totally change the portfolio. And so just like with individual investors that we work with, we think it's really important to have the entire 
process of investing documented. So you have an investment policy statement that lists, here's the reason we're in investing in the first place. Here's our time horizon. Here's how much spending and how much money we're going to take out every year. Here's our goals. Here's some of our sort of benchmarks. Here's our target asset allocation. So I think you need to have a lot of that stuff documented. And I think that can help for individuals as well. Carl Richards has a great book, Behavior Gap, and he also has this book called The One-Page Financial Plan, where he says you can do it in one page if you want. But I think if you have some of that stuff documented, it's not like it's set in stone, but it's something that you can look at on occasion when one of these periods hits and you go, well, let's take a look at my investment plan. Have my goals changed at all? Have my financial circumstances? Because I think those are better reasons for making big changes to your portfolio than what's going on in the market. Obviously, you can take advantage of markets when they fall or when they rise, and you can rebalance and you can try to find right now you could find things that are on sale and maybe make you know well-timed purchases for things that are going to do well in the future but i think those huge shifts you make in something like an asset allocation probably has more to do with your personal financial circumstances uh, or your job or your savings rate or maybe you have a life event you have a child or you get married or, or you get a divorce whatever it is i think those reasons make more sense to me than making a wholesale shift to your investment strategy just because stocks are down. Along those lines, do you find that couples fight more when markets are down about what their household strategy should be? Ooh, that's a good question. Be, I mean, I think, so I've gotten, certainly gotten more questions from my wife in recent months about like <laughs> recessions and these sorts of things. Right. But one of the things that, as someone who pays attention to the markets all the time, like you, most normal people just don't pay attention to this stuff as much as we think. Yeah. Right? Like, like we're in this stuff and we're paying attention and we're reading blogs and we're listening to podcasts and we're reading books and, and I follow this stuff every day. And then I go to like a bar or a restaurant and I meet my friends and I see all those people shopping and I realize, oh, these people aren't thinking about the stock market all the time like <laughs> me. They just don't care. And right. you know what? That's true. Not of just regular people out there. That's true of like our clients too. And sometimes you have to remember, your, remind yourself that like, you know, you have to make this stuff more easy and accessible for these people because they don't either have the bandwidth to do it because they're busy, they're dealing with family, they have a job, or they just don't want to and they want to outsource it to someone else. So I think for a lot of people, they don't want to pay attention to this stuff all the time. And I think honestly, for most people, that's probably the right way to do it. Either you're really, really in it all the time or you're decide I'm going to detach myself from this. I'm not going to pay attention to the headlines. I'm going to set a plan and I'm going to kind of set it and forget it. Because I think the problem is the people who just dabble and they pay attention more in a bear market. And then I'm going to try to do more. And then in a bull market happens, they kind of forget about it again. And they, they're either, you know, halfway in or halfway out and they, they don't decide to do one or the other. You know, there's been these studies that show the people who just forget their password tend to have the best returns because they just leave things alone and they let <laughs> right, the markets right, right. Right, do, do the work for them. That's hilarious. You listening to your podcast, reading your blog. Do you call it a blog or a newsletter, by the way? I'm always, I want to be respectful. Yeah, I, I, I come from, I, I started it back in 2013. I think that was still one called a blog. You're so a I, blogger. Okay. Yeah. You're super passionate about markets and business and stocks. The only thing you're more passionate about is probably 90s hip hop, as we've previously established. Like, where did that come from? Where did your interest in the markets come from? I wish that I was one of those kids who I could say I was like 15 years old and reading Barons and picking stocks with my dad or something. Do but, you? Do you want to be one of those kids? kids. Nah, yeah, you're, you're true. Yeah, nah, you're right. Yeah. I, I did, I got into this stuff out of necessity because I went through high school and college and I was more interested in sports in high school and probably too much partying in college where I got to my senior year of college and I realized I don't know what the hell I want to do right. with myself. I, and I looked at all these people around me who had a plan and I realized, and I guess I thought like, I'll just figure it out to give myself a little bit of a break. I feel that's a lot easier these days to pay attention to this stuff and do some research. But back when I got out of school in 
2004, it was a little harder and there wasn't as, weren't as many avenues to try to find stuff. And, and I just realized like, I don't know what I do with my life. And so I, my first, I got an internship with an investment analyst and kind of thought I could see, and I knew I wanted to be in finance in some aspect. I liked working with numbers and data, but I didn't know what. And I got to work with the markets a little bit. And I thought this is interesting. And I got a job working in the institutional investment world. And it, it just so happened that there was a, an opening there. It wasn't like I had chosen that. And my boss took the time to teach me a lot of this stuff. But I also realized like if I'm having conversations with these money managers and these people from banks and investment firms, I don't know what they're talking about. And so I have to do some work. So I, I just set on this journey of like self-education where I just read and read and read. And every person I talked to I said, give me your three favorite investing books. And I read them all. I read all the stuff on Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger and, and history of the markets. And and then I got into that led me to more stuff on like behavioral psychology and understanding this and Daniel Kahneman and Richard Thaler and all these people. And the more I read, the more interested I got in it. And so it wasn't like this was a passion of mine, but it was like I was in this and I was working in this stuff. And I realized like, if I want to make a go at this, I have to start learning. And I realized once I started that learning process, I kind of thought, geez, I, I, never, I never really liked writing in college or high school, I never liked reading. I didn't read any books in college or high school. So I think I was playing catch up a little bit. Yeah. And once I got into that, I realized like, oh, that's right. The, the learning process doesn't stop when you get out of school. It's just starting. Yeah. That, that's really when you have to understand. And and I got so much out of that process, I decided I wanted to keep it going. And I've, I've found that writing is a way to really keep that going because writing, I've heard people say a number of times, is a way to gather what you, what it is you really think about something. Right. You, you can think I have an opinion on this until you start doing some work on it and you put some data down and you do some research. You know, you kind of realize, like, oh, this is what I really think about this and I'll put it down. And I found writing is, has been very helpful for me in terms of gathering my thoughts and understanding what it is I really think about something. So selfishly, writing for me has been has been great because it's, it's really kept that learning process going. I'm a 25 year old college graduate, whatever. I'm starting to become aware like you were coming out of college, but I haven't read anything about finance. And maybe I was an English major. What three books would you give me? What would you assign to me to help me get on my journey? Oh, good one. Especially for young people. Ramit Sethi has a book called I Will Teach You To Be Rich. It's a perfect thing to get you started just learning about setting aside money for an emergency savings account starting to save in your 401k, the basics of the markets and personal finance. And one of the reasons I like it is because he focuses more on personal finance than he does on investing. And I think, especially at a young age, personal finance is way more important than than the markets and understanding what it is to invest in and stock picking up. That For stuff sure. is way sexier to people, but getting your savings rate figured out, understanding how to budget correctly and set aside some money and just get your finances in order, that, that kind of thing is way more important than, than investing. Okay, that that's, that's one. All right. I like to recommend people Your Money in Your Brain by Jason Zweig is one of my favorite behavioral psychology books. Just it, it's all about neuroeconomics and how our brains sort of work against us and how these dopamine hits really what happens to our brain when certain things happen financially. Like one of the the studies that he looked at that there's basically no difference in a brain scan of someone who's high on cocaine or winning a lot of money in a short period of time in the markets. Or both. And yeah. And the, the corollary is you have to keep getting taking a bigger, bigger hit each time to get that same dopamine hit, because after you get it once, it's not going to be the same the next time. Right. So this is what this is what gets so many people in trouble is that they speculate once and they win. And that's people think being wrong in the markets is, is a bad thing. I think when you're when you're young, being right can be even worse because you think oh, I'm a genius. Right. Look at how easy that was. I think a lot of people learned that the wrong lessons in 2020 and early 2021 of man, investing is easy. I could just, if I do this every year, I'm going to be a millionaire in no time. Right. And then you you 
to keep upping that risk and you take more leverage and then you blow yourself up. And hopefully a lot of these people who did that paid their tuition. So that that's another one. What do I got here? Yeah, that's the, the window to your soul, the books behind a podcaster's uh, desk. What do we got? You know, one of my favorite, I think it's probably still the funniest book ever written about markets. And it's from the 1930s, maybe 1940s, Where Are the Customer's Yachts by Fred Oh, Schwed. interesting. Because the thing is, it's talking about people in the times of like the Great Depression. And one of these things that I realize the more history I read, like markets are constantly changing. The economy is constantly changing. People are always the same. People are always going to be yeah. greedy. They're always going to be emotional. They're always going to be fearful. It, it's all these human emotions and human nature. That's the one constant over time. And he actually does it. He kind of explains these things in a humorous way in explaining Wall Street. Not there's some dated references in there, but a lot of it, it still kind of rings true today. Where are the customers' yachts? Yep. I want to read and that. And one of the great business book titles as well. It, it was basically, you know, one of these Wall Street brokers saying, hey, there's my yacht down at the harbor. And some guy, well, where are all your customers' yachts? Right? You, <laughs> that's the Who's whole. getting rich based on your services, right? Yeah. All right. Let's talk about your blog, uh, your blog slash newsletter, Wealth of Common Sense. Why did you title it Wealth of Common Sense? You know, I'd always, my brother and I had always talked about business and finance and a lot of this stuff together. And I remember every time one of our friends would make a really dumb financial decision, we would say like, why can't people just use more common sense? And we were always saying that like a lot of the dumb mistakes people make, it's really, it's, it's all just common sense. And this is really cliche, but a lot of the parallels between dieting and, and being healthy and personal finance are there, right? It, everyone knows what you should do, what you have to do, right? To stay in shape, you exercise and you eat healthy. How do you, that, that's the common sense part, but then how do you get there? And, and I honestly don't remember how I came up with the wealth part. I kind of did the whole blog as it, kind of on a, on a whim. I was getting my MBA at the time. I had a friend who was building websites in one of my MBA classes. And I think we had to do a project where you created something that you wanted to do on the side as like an entrepreneurial thing. And I said, well, if I ever did anything, I'd want to help people learn. Because I was always getting questions from, because I was the investment guy because I worked in the field, right? And I got my CFA and put all these years into getting that. And I would get all these questions from people that were not these crazy investment things I'm learning in the CFA, but, you know, well, what do I invest in my 401k? And hey, is it, what do you think is going to happen to the market next week? And people are always asking me these questions. And I finally got sick of it. And I said, you know, what? I'm just going to write it and send it out to family and friends. <laughs> right. And I'm sick of answering all their questions. I'm going to write about the markets here. And at that time, I was just getting into reading Barry Ridholtz at The Big Picture and Josh Brown at The Reform Broker. So kind of getting into the understanding financial blogs. And I thought, I really like the way that those guys kind of just lay it all out there and they're themselves. Maybe I'll try that. Kind of thinking, I'll do this for like three to six months. I'll do like 25 blog posts and I'll leave it there and it'll be, that'll be good, right? And the more I started writing, the more I enjoyed it, the more I wanted to do. And then the, that, like I said, with the learning process, I, the more I wrote, the more I wanted to read and learn more. And, and it just sort of snowballed on itself. And I just kept going. And now almost 10 years later, here we are. Does it help you bring in new clients? Does, do, do, does having a personal brand as you've developed, um, perhaps not even intentionally, does that, does that help uh, yeah, that, that, ring the bell? That's our, entire, that's our entire business development strategy. And it's not something that we initially set out to do. All of us that started a blog did it for different reasons. We all kind of came from different backgrounds. Barry was an investment strategist. Josh was actually cold calling people as a broker back in the day. Right, Michael yeah. worked in insurance. All these, you know, But we all started writing because we really enjoyed this stuff. And when we came together, we, yeah, we did all realize that people, when I was in my prior job, people would email me and say, hey, I, I really like the way you think about things. Who do you work for? Can your firm manage my money? And I kind of said, well, I, I work in this institutional world managing money for an endowment fund. I, I don't want really to do that. And then when I joined up with the team at Ritholtz, it was, you know, 
kind of like, okay, now I can bring over some clients. And they had already done that. And we, we realized from day one that this, that, that strategy worked that we'd had to people. I don't think we realized the sort of effect that, that people, people who have read you, your stuff or listened to your podcast or watched your videos over time. We kind of thought after a certain point, we'd reach a law of diminishing returns where, okay, once we, people who've wanted to reach out, we'll reach out. And then after that, we'll get, we'll build our business on referrals. But I think what we underestimated was the fact that people who follow us, they're not just going to reach out because we're there. They're going to reach out because they have something that happens to them. Either they're going to retire and they, maybe they've been doing it themselves or they have an advisor they're using that they don't really care for and is not really attentive or helping them. Or they have some sort of life event where they've, they've got some stock options that made them wealthy or they came into some money somehow through an inheritance or whatever it is. And we were getting way more and more of those. And now that we've built up our content business, that's our, to- that's our whole business strategy. And we, we tell people, we don't want people to just throw money at us because they like our stuff, but we think it shortens the window from someone saying yes or no. Because you've built trust and you've demonstrated expertise? Yes. Yes. And that's the whole, that's, that's the whole thing that I tell a lot of other advisors who are thinking about doing this because we have a lot of people ask, like, how do I build up an audience? And what we tell them is, well, building up an audience is hard. It took us years and years and years to do. We, we say first, build up a library, right? And show that you have expertise. And so if a client reaches out and says, hey, I'm really nervous about rising interest rates. What can you tell me about that? Oh, well, Ben wrote about this three years ago. Take a look at his blog post. He already wrote about this or he just wrote about this last week. Uh, and I think for advisors, that's the thing is, is you kind of know the questions that are going to come from your clients and they don't have to be super specific, but you kind of know based on the cycles, what is going to be asked of you. And I think if you build that sort of library, it does, it helps with the expertise and the trust because this is a service business and trust is the big, I mean, people are talking about handing over their life savings to you, right? Trust is the number one thing. Obviously you have to be an expert, but being an expert and having CFPs on staff and people who know about tax and life insurance and, and financial planning, all this stuff, that's sort of table stakes. Now you, right. you do, you need to get someone you trust and people work with people that they either like or that they trust. So it- what's been your most popular subject or topic that comes up on the blog? Is there, is there one thing that, that goes viral and while a lot of other stuff is sort of more technical and demonstrates your expertise? I, I do think that the personal finance stuff and the stuff about like the housing market, because I think that affects so many more people is that stuff always goes over well. I'll tell you though, the most popular blog. And so I, we have our Google page stats we can look at every year. Every year since 2014, I've had the same post. That's the most popular one every year since 2014. And I wrote a story about a guy named Bob who only invested at market peaks. And I think mm. it was called like, what if you only invested at market peaks? And it shows that he invested right before the 1980, 81 crash, and right before the 1987 crash, and right before the dot-com bubble, and then right before the 2008 crash. And those are the only four times he invested. And how did he do? He doesn't have any money left. Well, no, it's the opposite. So here, well, he, let me back up and tell you the, the Right story. before the peak? So he, he only, he saves his money in a checking account, okay. right? And then he only puts, he, he, he builds it up in a checking account. So he's not earning anything. And then he puts it in right before peak, but he saves over a 40 year period. So he starts at his twenties and he retires when he's 65. He puts his money these four times, but the, the, the saving grace of it is he never, once he puts it in at a peak, he never takes it out. Oh, he never sold. Right. Yeah, okay. And so, and so I, I remember running these, I ran these numbers in 2014 because people were saying, oh, the market's peaking. What happens if I invest right before? So I said, well, what happens if you do just invest at a peak? And the, the giveaway was, I think he invested. $200,000 call it in change. And he ended up a millionaire after 40 years because those ones that he left in there, even when they're invested at a peak, waiting long enough, kind of like even investing, you know, before a 35% drawdown in a week in 1987, you know, 
long enough time horizon can help smooth that stuff out. And that one, for whatever reason, has resonated with people where hundreds of thousands of people read that still every single year. And it's by oh, wow. far my most popular blog post every year. What advice would you have given Bob? I mean, uh, presumably you'd say dollar cost average or just make that, it that, a... So I, I, did the, I did the alternative of, and actually we created a video of this that's on our YouTube channel. And I did an alternative of well, what would happen if Bob just put it in every single month instead of waiting and trying to figure out when he's going to feel comfortable investing again. And yeah, he would have tripled his money instead of, you know, of what it ended up. So he would have, he would have done a lot better. So, and I think that's probably the best strategy for most people. And it's also the most realistic, right? Because most people invest and save based on their paycheck, right? You get paid every week or every two weeks or every month or whatever it is. And then you put a little money into your 401k or IRA from that paycheck. And so most people don't really have to think about, well, should I do a lump sum or a dollar cost average in overtime? Most people invest in a periodic fashion because that's when they get paid and they take a certain percentage out or a certain amount out. And honestly, I think for most people that that is by far the the best strategy they can have because it, it, it allows you to shut your brain off. Mm. But it also it diversifies when you're buying, right? You're buying in different, you're buying in bull markets, you're buying in bear markets, you're buying in inflation and deflation and high rates and low rates and all these things. And it diversifies when you're buying. And I think that can help you. So you're not putting all your eggs in one basket in terms of when you've purchased stocks. It seems to me that part of your mission with the gospel of common sense is to teach both humility and self-awareness as investors. Like we're just almost nobody can beat the market and we all feel like we should be trying to do something. And the best thing to do is to do nothing, doing something. <laughs> and sometimes it's a hard decision to make. And I think the biggest thing, I think when I first started writing, my whole thing was it's index funds or nothing. Everyone should be in index funds or target date funds. And I think I've, I've changed on that over the years. I think you just need a plan. I think, and I also think that my, my biggest underlying belief is that simple is better than complex. Because I learned a lot, especially working in the institutional world, that a lot of these people try to make it way more complex than it has to be. They want to invest in hedge funds. And they want to invest in private equity and venture capital and all these different things. And they want to hedge this and they want to make sure they hedge that. And I think just simplifying is the biggest thing. So I, I know that there's a number of different ways to be successful as an investor, but I think you just have to have a plan and stick to it come hell or high water, because that's the problem with people is that they, they bounce around to different plans depending on how they're feeling or how the market is doing. And that's the problem for people is that they, they want to find the, a perfect strategy. And I think, you know, perfect is the enemy of good, because if you just find a decent strategy you can stick with, even a, a subpar plan is better than no plan at all. And I think if, if you don't have a plan and you're just jumping around from different strategy to different strategy, that's, that's where people get in trouble. That sounds like good advice to that 25 or 26 year old we were talking about earlier that you gave those three books to. What would you tell that same person about the connection between money and happiness? Or what would you, what would you want him to understand to really embrace emotionally? I've met enough rich people to know that money doesn't automatically buy happiness. It can buy comfort and security in a lot of these things. But I, I think if money alone is your end goal, and I'm going to get a number and that's going to make me happy. But there's been studies done that that basically look at anyone who's got an inheritance or become really wealthy. And they ask, you know, how much money would make you happier? And, and almost to a person, no matter how much they have, whether it's $100,000 or $10 million, yeah. double. If I, had, if I just had twice yeah. as much as they have now, then I'd be happy. And so that's Mike Norton, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, yeah. Happy money is one of my another one that I think a young person would would be wise to read. I, I also think, unfortunately, a lot of it comes down to your personality and what what really makes you happy. So I can't tell someone in their 20s what to spend money on that's going to make them happy because everyone has different personality and emotional makeup, but also people change. I'm in my, you know, lower 40s now and have 
three kids and the way that I view the world of happiness is way different than I did in my 20s, right? In my 20s, I wanted to go out all the time. I wanted to travel. Now I want to spend time with my family and create experiences with them. And and I really, so I think a lot of it is really just coming down to prioritizing. And I think that's one of the big things I learned from Ramit in that I Will Teach You to Be Rich book is he talks about, listen, spend money frivolously on the things you really care about, but then cut back relentlessly on everything else. And I think mm. that's one way to be happy. But I think a lot of people don't go about that process of prioritizing in the first place and thinking, well, what is going to make me happy? So some people will say it's crazy to spend a lot of money on clothes, right? But if, if buying nice clothes makes you happy, that's fine. But that you have to cut back somewhere else, maybe. Maybe you're not going to be able to go out to eat as much. Or maybe you're going to have to live in an apartment that's not as nice as you think. Or if, if where you live is really important to you, you want to spend up on a really nice place, a house or an apartment, whatever, maybe you're not going to have the nicest furniture. Or maybe your car is going to be older. and be like. So I, I think the biggest thing is that life is all about trade-offs. And prioritizing is is one way to make yourself a little happier. But as you said at the beginning of the uh, the show that we love to spend money, Americans, we just love and love to spend. How do we get people to think about those trade-offs on a on a massive scale? I mean, cuz it seems like that's what's led to a lot of our problems as a as a culture. I wish I had a good answer for you. I I think some people are honestly a lost cause. And it, it that sounds kind of harsh. <laughs> when I first started writing, I thought I'm going to save everyone, right? I'm right. everyone's going to be, but I think you can help people who, who want to be helped, but I think some people unfortunately have to go through their own mistakes and pay tuition and, and realize before they get to a certain place of, oh, that that's not very smart. I shouldn't be spending my money on this stuff. I need to get my personal finances in order. I, I treat, I like to think of it as treating savings as, as a bill payment. So whatever, if you're saving 10% in your, in your 401k every month, you kind of look at that as, you know, that's just like the, the utility bills, right? I'm, it's out of sight, out of mind. I'm paying it automatically. That's a bill that has to be paid because I'm paying my future self and I'm growing and compounding my money. I, I think you almost have to, I, I think instead of trying to come up with some sort of psychological hack or f- way to get a person to change their behavior, the easiest way to do it is just automating and getting it out ahead of time and making those good decisions. And I think for most people, it's just, I'm going to set aside a certain percentage of my paycheck. It's going to come out of my checking account automatically. I'm not, I'm not going to see it. I'm not going to touch it. It just goes out and then I'm going to spend whatever's left over. Right. And I think that's the problem for most people is the, but like, budgeting is really hard. And, and it's like, you know, whatever's left over at the end of the month, that's what I'm going to save. And unfortunately, for a lot of people, it doesn't work like that. When you get to the end of the month, it's probably not there. Right. And the, a better way of doing it is is front loading those savings, and then saving then spending everything else that's left over. And yeah. then from there, the way to prioritize is you can spend it on whatever you want, you don't have to worry about budgeting, you know, if you've got all those needs taken care of, and saving is one of your needs, then everything else can just be discretionary spending that it doesn't matter if you blow it on stuff and you go out all the time and you buy six appetizers at every meal. If you have the money left over, then spend it how you want. I've stopped doing the six appetizer thing for completely different reasons. It has to do with my body mass index, but uh, I hear what you're saying. Hey, I love your podcast, Animal Spirits, with your buddy, Michael Batnick. You guys are hilarious together. You love your charts and uh, you find a lot of great things to talk about. What's coming up on the show? You know, we, I think it's been a, since the pandemic, I mentioned, it's just been a really interesting period of time. And, and, and I think kind of chronicling through that and working through what's going on has been really helpful. And we get, we get a lot of feedback from our audience. That's helpful. Every once in a while, people like to rub it in our faces if we were wrong about something <laughs> or if we put out an opinion. I right. think that's going to happen if you're, if you're on that much. But, you know, the whole point of that show was just, this is the stuff that we're interested in talking about all the time. Let's put that conversation out in the world and see if it helps. And, and that's another thing that I think has helped learn. And I, I think 
this period for sure, we've spent way more time focusing on what's going on in the macro economy than we ever have with the markets, which is interesting. It's almost like the economy is more interesting right now than the markets, even though stocks are down 20 or 30%. So yeah, I, I, we're going to keep talking about whatever's sort of going on in the markets. But, but I think getting a lot of feedback from the audience has been really helpful for us too, because we see the kind of questions people are dealing with and asking, and, and our inbox is constantly full of people asking questions. And I think getting that help from the audience has been really helpful for us in terms of steering show in the right direction. It's a lot of fun. And I recommend it to all my listeners after they listen to their weekly crazy money episode. That's called Animal Spirits. There'll be links to it in the show notes as there will be to your to your blog, A Wealth of Common Sense. Where else can our listeners find out more about you? We have a YouTube channel called The Compound. So we, you can actually watch some one of the surprising things to us is people like the video on, on uh, podcasts. Sometimes we we didn't think that was a thing. But I think the younger generation likes to watch that. So we have our compound YouTube show too. Awesome. We'll put links to that YouTube channel there as well. Ben Carlson, it's been a lot of fun. I enjoy your work. Best of luck in the future. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Hey, everybody. If you like what we're up to here at Crazy Money, do us and yourself a favor by following the show on your favorite podcast app and subscribing to our YouTube channel. Also, click the link in the show notes to subscribe to my new Substack, where you'll get bi-weekly thoughts on the role of money in our world and in our lives directly to your email inbox. Thanks for sticking around. We'll see you next week.